You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs, and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we are joined by Aaron Buckwald, who is a staff software engineer at Ava Labs. Avalanche is a layer one blockchain that provides developers with a framework to build their own blockchains while being more decentralized, more scalable, and interoperable compared to other blockchains in the market today. With that, Aaron, a very warm welcome to you on our show from both Nikhil and myself. Hey, Aaron. Hey, guys. Great to be here. So, Aaron, I must say you have a pretty interesting background. Uh, you graduated with a bachelor's degree in computer science from Cornell. Uh, and prior to joining the Avalanche project, you worked as the chief flight software engineer for a CubeSat space mission at NASA. So, uh, could you tell our audience a little bit more about your background, uh, your experience working for a space mission, and uh, what made you transition to crypto and blockchain? Sure, yeah, happy to. Uh, so, actually, I, I started at Ava Labs this summer after my freshman year at Cornell University. So, I was actually working on that space mission. It was a research project at Cornell with Professor Mason Peck, uh, and the project was actually to send two CubeSats to space in order to test two novel technologies that have been developed at Cornell University. So the first one was an optical navigation technology that aimed to use off-the-shelf Raspberry Pi cameras in order to figure out where a CubeSat was in space. So the CubeSat was going to be constantly spinning and therefore getting a full view of where it was and basically figure out where it was by taking pictures of the moon, uh, the earth, and the sun. Uh, and that was kind of the idea. Uh, the other technology that I was also testing out was water electrolysis propulsion. Uh, so this was a very low thrust system that was intended to use water electrolysis in order to have low thrust for long haul space missions that didn't need to go very fast and could be uh, over a very long period of time. So the goal was actually to deliver these CubeSats aboard Artemis 1 uh, into lunar orbit in order to demonstrate those technologies. Uh, so I was the, the chief uh, flight software engineer on this mission as a, as a freshman in college. So it was a, it was a research mission, uh, but it was a very, very interesting one. And one that I, I learned a lot about uh, space, uh, that industry coordinating and software engineering on. Uh, and it was something I really enjoyed. Uh, at the same time, though, when I first started college, I actually really badly wanted to get into computer science research. This was something where I had had a little bit of a startup experience prior to that uh, in conversational AI, and I really enjoyed this idea of being at the cutting edge of some field. And so the way that I saw it was research or startups are the two best ways to get into that. And as an undergrad, I really wanted to figure out some way to do CS research and try what that was because I'd already had a little bit of startup experience at that point. So I was looking around for different uh, computer science professors that I could try and do research with. And I actually ended up finding Professor Mason Peck. He actually gave a talk at my dormitory about how he was actually incredibly inspiring. He gave a talk about how research was always trying to push uh, the boundaries of what we can do. And the way he described it was just so captivating. It sounded so much more interesting than anything I would do working at a big tech company or working at Apple and trying to make an iPhone a little bit bigger and then trying to make it smaller again a few years later when preferences change. And I just thought that trying to be in that research community was exactly what I wanted to do. And I always wanted to get more into the deep CS side and space was something I was very passionate about. 
so that was a great first step, but I, I always wanted to do something that was more deep CS research. And so Goon, uh, Professor Sierra at the time, uh, was a distributed systems professor, a professor of CS at Cornell. Uh, and I was very interested in all of the research that he had done. He had been in blockchain and crypto since the early 2000s. He was literally an OG in the space. Uh, and so when I finally saw that Avalanche was actually recruiting a little bit on Cornell's campus, uh, I threw my hat in the ring and I was lucky enough to get it. Uh, it's a whole story as it turns out of how I ended up uh, getting that. I think it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I haven't looked back since and it's been a great journey here at uh, Alpha Labs. And that was my first job in crypto. Great. I mean, that's a really fascinating story, Aaron. And it's very heartening to see the value that you place on uh, Web 3.0 and decentralization and crypto and blockchain. So uh, uh, moving on, could you uh, tell us a little bit about Avalanche, you know, how the project started? Uh, I mean, as of today, uh, Avalanche claims to be more decentralized, more scalable and more programmable than Ethereum. So could you explain how Avalanche is different from Ethereum and some of the other layer one blockchains that are out there? Yeah, of course. So Avalanche was originally, the, the founding of Avalanche was based on a novel consensus protocol that was developed at Cornell. So that was the, the Snow family of consensus protocols or the Avalanche and Snowbank consensus. So the Snow family of consensus, the way that it scales to a large number of validators and achieves a higher level of decentralization, as well as a higher throughput and a lower latency per transaction, is that it has a much lower message complexity. So the Snow family of consensus is a protocol that relies on instead of using an all-to-all -all communication protocol where every validator in the network has to communicate with everybody else and get a response from everyone, which starts to degrade in performance as you start to get higher network latencies and a larger number of network participants, Avalanche actually relies instead on a repeated subsampling algorithm. And what that means is that instead of if there's a thousand validators in the system, there are a little bit over a thousand validators on the Avalanche network today in production. Uh, if there are a thousand validators in the system, instead of asking every single one of them what they think in order to make some decision, what you do instead is you actually ask uh, some subsample, some random subsample of them. So let's say K or 20 validators. So you ask 20 validators what they think. And if all of them say the same thing, then you can say, okay, I can increment my confidence a little bit that the network is leaning towards this thing. And you repeat this process over and over and over again until you reach a point where you have gotten this enough sufficiently large number of times in a row that you can say with a very, very high level of confidence, uh, a higher level of confidence even uh, than to have like six or seven or 10 uh, reorgs in Bitcoin, which doesn't really happen very frequently, uh, that that is completely finalized. And so Avalanche relies on this repeated self-sampling algorithm in order to scale to a much larger number of validators so we can have more decentralization. And this, prop this protocol actually has really nice properties as well. And that you can actually parameterize its both safety and liveness properties because you can set the sample size K as well as you can set the alpha or what portion of the, that sample needs to respond positively in favor of something in order for you to increment your confidence value for it. And you can also change the value or the number of times you need to receive a positive response in favor of some item in order to accept that. And so because you can actually parameterize this rather uh, because there are all these sub in parameters or parameters that are less than the total size of the validator set, you can actually parameterize it so you can change the safety and liveness of the protocol itself uh, and get different properties. So on mainnet today, we have transactions and blocks that are being finalized in about one to two seconds, uh, which is, and this is complete finality. So there are no reorgs post a block being accepted on Avalanche. Uh, and this is in contrast to, you know, you see some other uh, L2 proof of stake based blockchains. I uh, won't name any names, uh, but you know, this past week there have been uh, 
a number of a very, very large reorg on one. And this just doesn't happen on Avalanche, which leads to a much better user experience. And I think for blockchain to scale, this, uh, there are a couple of things that are really, really important that are completely separate from the programmability of it itself or what you can actually build on it, what applications you can run on a virtual machine or on a blockchain. It's how much throughput can you actually do on the system and how fast can you actually confirm a transaction or confirm a block or just confirm that something has happened so you can tell a user, hey, whatever you just did, it's finalized, right? If you're interacting with Facebook, you don't want to have to update your profile and then come back an hour later to make sure that it actually updated, you know? And there are actually research studies done by Google that find that if you have, uh, that users are actually very, very non-tolerant. They're not, they're barely tolerant at all of latency is above like a hundred milliseconds or something like that. So when you have blockchains today that take 12 minutes to get a notion of finality or 15 minutes or, or whatever it may be, you're actually dealing with a problem where users, what we've seen in web two is that users will not do that. They simply won't take it on. And so Avalanche is one of the few blockchains that can actually provide that very, very fast finality uh, that gives users exactly what they need in order to say, okay, I do something, it's done. I don't have to worry about it. And give them that user experience that causes people to actually want to use applications built on web three. And I think to be honest, that is where blockchain is really trying to go is that it's not trying to be some, alternative. Uh, it, it is trying to be an alternative in some ways, but in a large way, it's trying to outcompete what came before it. It's trying to build an alternative that can actually build better services and better user experiences from a privacy perspective, but also from a performance perspective. And so I think that a latency is incredibly important and that throughput is incredibly important when it comes to scaling to a larger number of applications. Yeah, but uh, so you had earlier mentioned that uh, there are certain things in your consensus algorithm that you can parameterize with. One is being K, which is a su subset of validators that you sample, and then the other one being uh, the number of times you sample it. Uh, the So I was curious, so as you scale uh, Avalanche, right, it becomes a 1,000 mm -hmm. nodes, 10,000 nodes, uh, a huge uh, network, Uh does this parameterization or the subsample need to also scale up along with it? Or is there some other relationship between this that kind of affects your performance and latency? Because at some point, basically, the larger the network, the more time it takes for the uh, knowledge that a transaction was introduced uh, to uh, uh, transmit throughout the network, right? Yep, absolutely. So, uh the, the thing I mentioned, the message complexity for Avalanche is O of N lock in. So it's, uh, it's better than other alternatives. And this means that for the base layer network, you can scale to a larger number of participants, but you're absolutely right that as you scale that network even larger and larger to 10,000, 100,000 validators, you will start to see more degraded performance. Uh, and as you start to scale to, you know, right now we're maybe seeing a couple thousand transactions per second, or is maybe the capacity of the, the primary network. Uh, but, you know, if you try and scale that to put the entire banking system on it, then, you know, maybe it doesn't actually scale to that. Uh, because now you have a, a demand for throughput of a hundred thousand to a million transactions per second. Uh, so the actual way that Avalanche scales beyond that is we try and offer this consensus protocol that provides the best properties possible out of the box. Uh, but no matter what you do from that perspective, there's always going to be some capacity. And if you're trying to put a large number of different applications on top of that, uh, you know, at a certain point, you might go above what that capacity is. And then that's when you start to see increasing fees, increasing uh, or degrading performance for users and all these sorts of problems. So the way that Avalanche actually tries to solve this is through our architecture of subnets. 
Uh, so this is a sort of a horizontal scaling approach where the primary network, and I can talk a little bit about how Avalanche is architected beyond just the consensus protocol now. Avalanche is architected as a number of different subnets where the primary network is one subnet that every validator on the Avalanche network is required to validate. And so the primary network is this validator set. Uh, the way I kind of describe it in CS terms is the conjunction of a validator set and a set of blockchains. Mm -hmm. So there's this validator set, which is all the validators on the primary network. And then there are three blockchains on the primary network, which is the platform chain, which coordinates the validator set itself. Uh, it so it coordinates who is a validator, what is their node ID, um, when, when do they start staking? When do they end staking? As well as the coordination of delegators. And then we have the X chain, which is a DAG that's meant for fast payments. And then finally, we have the C chain or contract chain. And the contract chain is an EVM based chain that you can deploy smart contracts to and interact with them. And it's compatible with the EVM. So all of the tooling that you're used to, you can basically use out of the box on the C chain, which is really nice. And that's actually how we've gotten a large number of developers to be able to launch applications on Avalanche is on the C chain. But, uh, that's still three blockchains and that's a, you know, a finite number. And so what Avalanche actually does beyond that in order to achieve even higher scale is this notion of subnets where you can actually create your own separate subnet, uh, that uses a subset of the validators in the primary network. Uh, and with that subset of validators, you can actually set up some blockchains for them to validate. So you can have a subnet of, let's say five to a hundred validators on from the primary network that are validating their own EVM chain. And so they can opt in to validate this chain and all of a sudden they are not putting any additional burden on the validators of the primary network and they can spin up the additional hardware in order to validate these additional, uh, this additional chain. Uh, and out of the box, they can just add, uh, add throughput to the network. So there's actually a cool graphic that Patrick O'Grady has shared in the past of the time when we first launched a subnet on Avalanche. The first popular one was a game called Kerbata and Kerbata was a, a very popular game that was, uh, it, yeah, it was getting a lot of popularity and people were making a good amount of money off of it. And because people were making money off of it, they were willing to pay increasing fees on the Avalanche C-Chain in order to play. And so they were demanding basically all of the block space on the C-Chain. And that was causing other applications to suffer from higher fees to pay for it. And because this game was so profitable at the time due to high token prices, uh, people were continuing to buy up this block space and anybody that wanted to use it was having to pay slightly higher fees. So as soon as this game, this game didn't necessarily want or need to be on the C chain. It was relatively isolated. So it didn't really have a need to be on the C chain where it had composability with all the other applications there. So it moved to its own subnet and has, I think, five to 10 validators there. And all of a sudden, all of the throughput, all of the demand for block space that's used for that game was moved off of the primary network onto just a small subset of that, uh, the validators, just the ones that want to opt into Kerbata. And now all of that throughput can, so yeah. The, so this is this is base very interesting and it's actually a little confusing when I was reading the documentation. So let me just mm -hmm. uh, uh, summarize what you said so far in my uh, just play back with you so that I have it right in my head. So what you're saying basically is that the architecture consists of one primary network, mm -hmm. and this primary network basically I think uh, is uh, it has all the validators. So if, I, if you want to be a validator in Avalanche. You need to be a validator with the primary network and then uh, whatever other subnetworks you want. And uh, there are three blockchains that are part of this primary network, which is the C chain, P chain, and the X chain. Yep. And uh, so the subnetworks essentially are networks that are not the primary network. There are other, other networks like kind of like side. Uh, uh, networks, but they have their own blockchains as mm -hmm. well. 
so they're kind of like the in in hierarchy basically you have like a primary network underneath that is a sub network underneath that is a virtual machine uh, sorry the the, uh, the blockchain are these uh, sub network blockchains also one of these three types which is the smart contract the c chain p chain or exchange type or is uh, can they be completely uh, complete uh, of of the or of their own uh, kind of design yeah uh, so they can be completely different so we've actually in the architecture of the avalanche go the primary client we've pretty much completely decoupled the consensus engine from the virtual machine and what that means is that mm-hmm. you can define some arbitrary virtual machine that defines a block format block building logic and block execution logic so you can run an arbitrary blockchain right on top of your subnet. So you can have a custom VM that does WASM, whether that's Cosm WASM, so Solana C-level, an EVM, or something that's completely specific to your own application and just defines transaction formats for whatever you want. Uh, so yeah, you can make it completely custom and up to you. So that's fascinating. So uh, so as a validator then, right, uh, if I want to be part of this particular subnetwork, Mm-hmm. Uh, do I then have to have a copy of each one of these blockchains, uh, virtual machines, yep. uh, implementations? Or yep, can exactly. I just choose one or two of the blockchains and say, okay, I don't want the others because or yep. I don't like the others or whatever? Yeah. So in order to validate a subnet, you have to have the virtual machines necessary to validate each of the blockchains. So like I mentioned, a, a subnet is sort of this conjunction of a validator set and a set of blockchains. So if there's, say, mm-hmm. three blockchains on a subnet, you have to have the virtual machines that are necessary for each of those blockchains so you can actually validate them. If you're missing one of them, right. the sort of trust assumption is that if you're validating a subnet, you're validating every blockchain on there. So while you could uh-huh. parse and validate, technically validate just the blockchain, there might be something you're... There might be something in one blockchain that talks to the other. Uh, and so if you're not validating one of the blockchains in a subnet, you might not be able to validate some of those transitions that depend on another blockchain in the same subnet. And that kind of comes from uh, this shared memory that we use, uh, which I can talk about more. So, so purely from kind of like a neatness perspective or, uh, or, uh, or a good architecture perspective, like you did with the uh, game, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's probably better to have more subnets uh, each with a fewer number of blockchains uh, with different implementations so that the validators don't have to create, uh, don't have to have so many different uh, versions of the virtual machines to be able to uh, validate, correct? So, I mean, purely from a, a maintenance perspective, it would be mm-hmm. easier to say, okay, if I'm if I'm running uh, completely, you know, my own version of the blockchain, I'm... Uh, I don't know, uh, using uh, uh, Elixir or uh, Erlang mm. and kind of coming up with my own custom implementation. And yeah. uh, uh, as long as it me- meets the uh, consensus uh, requirements, uh, I would be, it would be better for me to kind of just create an entire new subnet and deploy it in there rather than try to put it into an existing subnet. And then all the validators will come back and say, no, I can't support you. Right. Yeah, so there's a sort of a trust assumption that's missing here, which is when you create a subnet, you create the blockchains that are a part of it. So the way this technically works right now is you actually, uh, there's one transaction to create a subnet, and then you can, through separate individual transactions, you can create blockchains on top of that. And there's a set of control keys that has basically admin access to this subnet. Uh, so that's when we have these highly permissioned subnets, and those uh, uh, control keys are also responsible for assigning which validators should be validators of that subnet. 
Uh, you can then also convert this to an elastic subnet, which is proof of stake instead of proof of authority. And once you do that, uh, the subnet is essentially locked where you can no longer add blockchains to it. So the control right. keys can no longer. Yeah, exactly. If I could just quickly jump in and go back to the overall architecture. So I think mm-hmm. uh, I heard you mention, Aaron, that, uh, so coming back to the exchange chain, contract yeah. chain, platform chain, uh, the exchange chain, uh, did you say that it's, it's a DAG versus a linear chain? Yeah, that's right. Could you just tell our audience what is the reason for that? Sure. Uh, so a DAG is a directed acyclic graph, if you're not familiar. Uh, it's a very popular concept in CS. So if you've taken uh, APCS or an intro class, you're probably familiar with it. And the idea is that uh, there's some graph where you have uh, multiple nodes and you have edges that are only basically going in one direction. So you can never have a cycle. So you'll never have like A points to B. B points to C and C points to A, where you have some kind of a cycle. And so what this means is that similar to a chain where there's no cycle in a chain because everything's sort of going one direction, in a DAG, you have everything has uh, kind of a back pointer to what came before, uh, but there will never be a cycle where that thing that it's pointing to points back to it. So a DAG does this in a, sort of the same way. It is easier to explain with some, some graph or diagram, uh, but probably for this audience, people are familiar with it. Um, and so the reason that you may want to have a DAG uh, for a consensus protocol is that it has some some nice properties, namely that you can actually parallelize consensus further. So with a linear blockchain, everything can every block can have only one child because it's completely linear. Whereas if you have a DAG, if you have let's say one vertex where we would use to refer to individual nodes, it can actually have five or six different children. And so you can actually parallelize consensus further based off of that because you can have multiple validators building on top of the the same node without actually conflicting with each other as long as they contain a different set of transactions. So this is really nice, uh, or transactions that don't conflict with each other, I should say. So this can be really nice for consensus and lead to higher overall consensus performance. Uh, it does come with um, some some caveats, like things that make it more difficult to manage. Obviously, a completely linear chain is very easy to reason about. A DAG can be more difficult to reason about, but you do get that very nice um, parallelization possibility from it. So you're starting. we're starting to see DAGs used in a couple of different places too. I believe Aptos and Sui are actually using a, a DAG as part of their the voting structure for their mempool, which is a pretty cool use case as well. So uh, from what I was reading, you have a particular uh, protocol, consensus protocol called Snowball, mm-hmm. which is uh, custom designed only for chain-based uh, blockchains. Is that correct? Uh, so Snowball is actually for an individual consensus decision. Uh, and then Snowman oh, okay. is what builds on. So there's, there's two different things that build on Snowball. There's, yeah. So Snowman is, uh, Snowman is, I guess, kind of linear. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Snowman, I don't know how linear Snowman is, but we nevertheless call the linear chain Snowman, uh, which builds right. on top of Snowball. And basically you can pipeline consensus because if you're voting for a child of a block, uh, then you're transitively voting for its parent and Avalanche uh, is voting across a DAG of snowball instances as opposed to a linear chain. But uh, a linear chain is a simplification of a DAG, so they boil down to essentially the same thing, which is a snowball instance or multiple snowball instances. Cool. So so when you basically have to uh, do this particular consensus mechanism, uh, the the snowball uh, algorithm, can you kind of like uh, elaborate a little bit on what happens uh, if there is, uh, for example, a double spend? Uh, how, how does how does the consensus mechanism perform 
especially in in a with a dag when you have like maybe two children that are uh, doing the same it's a double spend transaction uh, so how how does one choose which one is the right one and what happens to the one that uh, is rejected sure so a double spend i've always thought of a double spend as a sort of a simplification of what's actually happening which is just a conflict in consensus so for example mm-hmm. a double spend is really let's say on bitcoin there are two transactions both of which are spending the same utxo so in yes. layman's terms this means like i've got 10 bucks and i'm trying to send it uh i'm trying to send you 10 bucks uh and then i'm also trying to send someone else the same 10 bucks so obviously if you have a system if you have a bank i should not be able to send the same 10 dollars to two different people it doubles the amount of money it's it's not allowed and if the bank is responsible for that money that just means that they allowed me to, to double my money which should not happen so this means that these two transactions should conflict. And the way you define that conflict is to basically say they're both trying to spend the same UTXO. They cannot both be valid to be included in the chain. So the way that this ends up sort of happening in the Bitcoin world is that you might have, uh, I send one transaction, uh, and it gets issued into some block or it's in the mempool. But because Bitcoin has such slow finality, it takes such a long time. I might at a later point, send another transaction that spends the same funds, but maybe pays a higher fee and hope that the original transactions where it gets reorged out. And so what you end up actually having to do is wait for this notion of finality. And if you have some reorg that occurs where one transaction gets replaced by another, then uh, if somebody assumed that the first transaction was finalized, then their money goes away. It's, it's gone. They can't actually use it. But state transitions, yeah. I've always thought of st- uh, double spends as a sort of a weird or bad terminology just because at the virtual machine layer itself or the blockchain layer itself, ignoring the consensus protocol, all you have to really do is say, is this UTXO there? Yes or no. So for example, if you have transaction one and transaction two, both are spending the same UTXO. Uh, transaction one tries to spend the UTXO. Okay. It's there. If transaction two is then tries to be issued after that in the same kind of chain. So it's uh, totally ordered. It comes after. If it tries to spend that same UTXO, it will just be seen as not valid. Uh, so it's much easier to think of it from that perspective. In the same way, Avalanche consensus uh, doesn't really have to worry about the notion of double spins. What it has to worry about is the notion of uh, conflicts in consensus. So at least from the perspective of a linear chain, this means that it leaves the definition of whether or not a transaction is valid inside of a block to the virtual machine itself. And what the consensus engine actually has to worry about instead is whether or not there are two blocks that conflict. And so in a linear chain, this basically means, are there two blocks that are issued at the same height or with the same parent? Because if, since you have a linear chain, if there are two separate blocks at the same height or with the same parent, obviously you can only actually accept one of them. Otherwise you end up with a sort of a DAG. And so uh, I guess I can explain that from the perspective of snowball slash snowman. Uh, but does that make sense from the perspective of how a double spend is sort of handled? It's like this sort of a weird generalization. Sure. You've kind of generalized the term double spend to kind of like a conflict between which is characterized as uh, two transactions at the same height of the same parent, right? Or two blocks. It's the same thing. So that's that's actually interesting because when you think about it in terms of a DAG, you mentioned that one, one DAG uh, node can have multiple children. Uh, so then how, how does that actually work out, right? Wouldn't that be a conflict? Sure. Yeah, so you can have multiple vertices with the... Uh with the same parent. And what you actually have to have is this additional notion of what a conflict is. Okay. And that means that if you have two separate vertices uh, with the same parent, those two vertices no longer conflict because they're in a DAG, not a linear chain. 
So we have to have a separate notion of what is a conflict between two vertices. And in order to define that notion, what we basically have is every vertex contains some transactions and the transactions have to define what UTXOs they spend. And therefore a vertex conflicts, vertex A conflicts with vertex B. If vertex A contains a transaction, that conflicts with a transaction in vertex B. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So so that's where uh, a little bit more complexity comes from in the, in the avalanche case. Yeah, because now you have this additional dimension uh, also to look at, right? Um, yeah, exactly. So a linear chain ends up being a lot nicer to, to reason about. Yeah. So uh, if when a conflict is uh, detected, right, uh, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned that we do the subsampling thing and you go through multiple rounds of it. But how, how, do, how, do you, how do the validators then decide, you know, which one is the right one and which one is the wrong one? Yeah. So basically what happens is you would take, uh, you would take a vote, uh, or you would take a poll of, let's say 20 validators on the network. And let's say that 80% or 85% of them respond back that they prefer block A, right? Let's say block A and block mm-hmm. B are both issued at high 10. So you take a poll of the network and let's say 80, 85% of them respond, I prefer block A. Uh, then you take a poll again. And if this time, uh, 85% of them say that they prefer block B, then you can say, for example, you can reset your confidence for block A and say, all right, I'm increasing my confidence for block B instead. And what you end up having to have to, in order to accept something is you have to have 20 consecutive votes in a row for the same block. So if you were to, if the network were at a 50 50 split, for example, uh, it would be very difficult to get a vote in, or it may, it may be difficult to get a vote in favor of block A over block B, because if you take some random sample, let's say you, you might, uh, on the norm, end up with a 50 50 split between block A and block B. But what ends up happening because you're taking a random sample is that probabilistically you'll end up at some point uh, taking a random sample that includes more people that are favoring block A over block B. And this is sort of like with a, with a coin flip. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. although if you flip a coin 10 times, there is some chance that you actually get five heads and five tails, but there's a higher chance that you end up either with seven heads and three tails or seven tails and uh, three heads, or that you end up slightly yeah. off kilter from the exact middle, right? And so in the exact same way, the protocol sort of collapses towards that. So once you start to tilt in one direction, it becomes even more likely that it'll collapse further in that direction. So this property is sort of uh, anti-stability, where if you're at a 50-50 split, probabilistically individual validators in the network will end up more likely to tilt in one direction or the other. So even if you're at a 50-50 split, it might be undetermined which one is more likely to, or which one will end up being decided, but you will start tilting in one direction and then very quickly collapse uh, even more and more quickly as you go in that direction. Does that part make sense? So, so yeah, to a certain extent. So, so when you mm-hmm. you you brought up the point, uh, the the point about the coin, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, if you take in probability, I mean, if if it's not a biased coin, right? If it's an unbiased coin, probability states that basically, given enough uh, coin flips, you will end up with a fifty-fifty uh, percentage, right? That is, it needs to be a sufficient number of coin flips. Uh, which beings that, you know, arbitrarily large, uh, they just basically say, okay, you need a large number of coin flips. And you do have trends in between where you basically say, okay, if it's only 10, then there is, there may be seven, three and three, seven and all, like, like you pointed out. But what you're kind of saying is that it, it would converge to a particular single one. So does that mean that when as a validator, uh, I see a particular majority happening. I align myself 
to that majority uh when do i kind of stop right when do i know that okay fine i have done a sufficient number of uh so where did you get the 20 number from right how uh, how do you know the 20 is enough for you to be able to get to that particular convergence no uh that's a great that's a great question um Yeah, so you'll flip your preference when you've seen more more polls in a row for this new color than the previous one. Uh so let's say you prefer block A initially, let's say you saw that first when when you let's say for example build a new block, you'll prefer that to start off or if you see a block A before block B, you'll initially kind of color yourself that way. We usually say color cuz we call them red and blue or in mm-hmm. many of our examples. Uh so you would be colored, let's say blue. Um yeah. and you would flip your preference from blue to red if you say started to receive more polls in favor of red than blue. Uh and so yes, mm-hmm. basically what happens is that in contrast to when you're flipping a coin over and over again, where if you flip the coin over and over again, uh let's say you get seven heads and three tails. If it's a fair coin in the next 10 flips, you're still going to expect uh roughly 50 50 split between 50 50, yeah. Exactly. The contrast here is that as you start to shift in one direction, the coin essentially gets weighted in the same way that you are. Ah, so yeah. okay. So it, as you so start you're kind to of tilt in one direction, adding momentum to that particular uh to that particular direction that you're going. Exactly, yeah. So it's like yeah, that's a really good way to say it is that you're adding momentum in that direction and probabilistically you're more likely to tilt in the same direction that the network is. So it's it's 100% possible that 90% of the network starts tilting towards uh blue while you yourself probabilistically sort of randomly start tilting towards mm-hmm. red but you're not going to get to the point of finality on red unless the network reaches a point of irreversibility um that it will also decide that and so the math is is fairly complicated there's uh it's in the avalanche consensus paper for for more details for any of the the readers uh but it ends up with sure. a sort of being analyzed through a sort of a birth death markovian process where you end up having to say that what is the point of irreversibility um and what is the chances of uh if you've received 20 consecutive pulls in a row what is the chances that somebody else has seen something else or that somebody else once you've reached that same point will see 20 consecutive things in favor of the opposite right and that would be a safety failure and as it turns out 20 is actually a good number where you end up with a very very high safety guarantee that that will essentially never happen and this is is just sort of a really really nice uh thing that happens when you have these sort of exponential process processes where by repeating this process over and over again it actually doesn't require a very large number of pulls in a row in order to get a very very high probability of finality so it's it's really pretty cool um and it's sort of inspired by epidemic and gossip protocols uh that's just leveraging the way probability works in a really cool and, and very interesting way right so so uh, and and this 20 number basically is uh not influenced by the size of the network or the number of validators or anything like that right uh it's it's basically uh, it, it would be even if you even if you have a hundred validators and you do 20 20 rounds you'll you'll start converging and even if it grows to uh, 10000 validators and you start uh, you do 20 rounds you'll start converging yep uh, the nice thing is that even as like you uh, you increase n uh the pro- if you increase n it'll just take longer for you to see polls in favor of something uh so the yeah. network will start to get colored in this yeah in the same way as you and you won't necessarily see 20 you will be less likely to see positive polls in a row until the network even of size n collapses or gets uh colored in that same direction and collapses in the same way uh so the protocol may take longer to get finality 
But the cool thing is that as you sort of gossip these things around, instead of relying on a slow protocol where you have to say, send to everybody, everybody just sort of gossips to some subsection of the network. And these gossip protocols are very, very fast because you send to five people, they each send to five people, and you have this exponential growth. Yeah, it's and an how exponential, it's an exponential curve. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I think we've seen this uh, in the Hashgraph. Uh, they were also uh, uh, used a similar kind of gossip protocol to kind of uh, do their their transaction settling. What uh, one one point? Uh, so you mentioned finality several times. At what point uh, of the percentage of the validators agreeing does finality actually happen? Is there like a like a switch or a data uh, data bit, a bit or something in the blockchain that gets set one uh, when finality is achieved? Uh, the analysis is actually a, a little bit complicated. Um, so that okay. comes with this Markovian analysis. So, you know, for example, if you have 90% of the network initially prefers blue and 10% initially prefers red, but the confidence uh, counter for each of those people that prefer uh, blue is not very high, let's say they're just starting out, then that's not nearly mm -hmm. as high a probability of irreversibility as if they were um, at, a, at a higher confidence counter. So the Analysis is actually fairly complex, so I can't really give the exact uh, details. I'd recommend the the paper and the Markovian analysis, but it's a it's a bit complicated with the math, to be honest. Okay, uh, and uh, so so once a transaction, basically the analysis says that this transaction is, uh, yeah, you know, there's a very high confidence, or there is a complete confidence that this is this is the right transaction, and it gets set. Uh, that 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 gets gossiped throughout the network. Uh, how do you know when to stop analyzing that transaction and move on to the next one? So you're asking, how do you know when to stop analyzing a specific transaction and move on? Uh, to yeah. How, when do when do you say, okay, yeah, we are we are we are clear. This is finalized. Uh, let's let's now take the next one and see next set of uh, transactions and. Uh, start yeah. finalizing them or is that like a continuous process they don't really actually stop you just keep doing one yep. after the other and yeah it's actually a continuous process where you can actually apply these votes transitively so for example transactions are a bit harder to reason about blocks are much easier so let's say you have uh let's say there's no conflicts and we have block 10 we have block 11 12 13 14 uh so we still even if there are no conflicts we still obviously have to go through this consensus protocol um and if you're voting for block 11 12 13 14 or 15 a vote for any of those is transitively a vote for all of its parents and all of its ancestors. So you actually don't right. need to kind of finalize this and then start the next process. You can actually do it all in parallel with the pipelining and just these transitive uh, vote applications. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, I think that's a that's a pretty big deep dive that we've taken into the consensus thing. I just wanted to quickly also kind of jump out and uh, talk about a few other things uh, uh, as well. Uh, one obviously is, uh, virtual machines. Uh, so we talked very quickly about virtual machines and we talked about, you know, the different types, Coreth, Platform and Avalanche. And, uh, uh, I saw one characterization, uh, that was given in, in your documentation that virtual machine can be talked, thought of like a class or a template for a blockchain, right? Yep. Uh, so, uh, my understanding, and maybe uh, I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the virtual machine essentially is kind of like a uh, container uh, with a 
technology stack, right? So it can be Golang, Rust, whatever, Linux, and, and a bunch of libraries that has been kind of blessed or that, that, that basically uh, has been uh, defined as, okay, this is the virtual machine that sets up a node for a particular type of blockchain. Uh, and and if you want to participate in this particular type in this particular blockchain on Avalanche, you need to set up this particular virtual machine and run that, right? Uh, so as a developer, uh, when I come in and I I want to kind of build for Avalanche, um, uh, do I have to build uh, a, an entire blockchain for my use case, or can I build on top? of a blockchain, uh, an existing one? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the guidance that you have uh, if for, a, for a developer uh, who wants to start out using Avalanche? Yeah, so I'll start out by apologizing. Uh, we have overloaded and for an unfortunate number of terms in CS, so virtual machines obviously being one of them. This is a term that's uh, pretty used pretty frequently. Yeah. Uh, and it's a very specific thing, which is not yeah, It was a little confusing for me as well. Some nuts too, we sort of ripped off in a way that like kind of makes sense, but still confuses people as well. Um, so let me, let me start off with just describing what a virtual machine actually is. Um, it's, it's not as heavy as heavyweight as what you're describing. It's a little bit smaller. Okay. So what a virtual machine is, is you're absolutely right. You can sort of think of it as a class is to a instance of a class as a virtual machine is to a blockchain. But it's not, uh, it's not like setting up its own container or anything like that. It's actually uh, just uh, an interface that the Avalanche consensus engine needs to talk to in order to perform consensus. So the consensus engine is generalized to some sort of, well, I, I would say container, uh, but uh, kind of a consensus container, but I won't use that because that's an overloaded term as well. Uh, so I'll just say right. some sort of a, a block, for example. So all okay. that the virtual machine has to do is handle the building, parsing, and fetching, uh, and a verification and acceptance or rejectance of these blocks. Uh, it's also responsible for, you know, setting up APIs for the blockchain itself as well. But at the base level, the way that the consensus engine has to interact with it is that it just has to, it just has to parse blocks that it may receive from the network and have to perform consensus on. It has to be able to build new blocks if it, you know, transactions have been issued to it, either through the mempool or through its APIs. And it needs, it wants to build a new block to go through consensus and kind of propose to the network. And it also has to be able to fetch blocks that it's accepted as well. So that the consensus engine can look them up and serve them to other validators as well as also fetch ones that might be currently in consensus. Uh, and so nice. it, the, each individual block is, uh, interface that's defined by the consistent and the virtual machine defines what that state transition represents. So the virtual machine's core responsibility at the basic level is defining what, how to parse that state transition and defining whether or not it's valid and what mutation on state has to be performed in order to do that. And this is extremely general. So the virtual machine can define whatever state that it wants. Avalanche Go, when it initializes a VM, it passes in a reference to its own prefix of a database that it can mutate however it wants. But what we're also seeing is that some virtual machines may actually want to create their own separate database on a different uh, type of database. Avalanche Go by default uses level DB. So one example is Patrick O'Grady released the uh, Hyper SDK uh, on Tuesday. And so that mm-hmm. Hyper SDK uses the Pebble DB out of the box instead and doesn't require using the same database that Avalanche Go provides. So there's no requirement that it does. Uh, there are certain reasons that you might want to, but if you want to use a different or just higher performance database, you're open to doing that. And it can maintain its own state being what is the state at this block? Uh, 
it can maintain a completely historical state and keep track of the state at every blocked yard history or can only keep track of the active state. Uh, that's completely up to the virtual machine. And that's all that's really required is just the ability to parse, build, verify, and fetch these blocks in their accompanying state transitions. Does that sort of make sense? And it's, it's a lot less than actually setting up a container. I can describe how Avalanche Go actually talks to these VMs as well. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, are they like uh, software development kits, SDKs, or some kind of uh, uh, libraries that we can use to kind of uh, bootstrap ourselves uh, a little bit, uh, rather uh, uh, to, to kind of build the uh, build the work, uh, virtual, virtual well, VM? Huh? Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. We should consider renaming some of these things, maybe. But <laughs> um, yeah, so there we just released the first SDK for building custom virtual machines on Tuesday. So that's the Hyper SDK. Uh, Pajero Gradier oh, okay. Head of Engineering so has been live tweeting for a while. SDK. Exactly, yeah. And so the nice thing about the Hyper SDK is that it's intended to put performance above all else and show as little, as small of an interface as possible to the VM developer. So all of the VM developer actually has to worry about, they don't have to worry about the state, networking, any of this. All they have to do is define a simple state transition and the execution logic for that state transition. So the Hyper SDK will take care of where you put that state transition, how you mutate state. It just exposes a simple interface for them to use, uh, as well as tooling around what is an action that can be performed, what does uh, authorization to perform some action mean, all these different things. And Hyper SDK has made all of the optimizations in the background and exposes the user the exact interface that Hyper SDK needs to in order to make a ton of optimizations in the background. So, so have there been any kind of like uh, opinions or preferences expressed in Hyper SDK as to you know things like languages and frameworks and uh, yeah, hundred uh, percent. So I would imagine that uh, so Hyper SDK obviously is one one example of that, uh, but it still needs to talk to Avalanche over some kind of protocol, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I remember reading in the documentation that this is a an, uh, remote procedure call type uh, protocol. Is that like a standard uh, HTTP-based uh, uh, protocol, or is it like a, a binary protocol that is uh, standardized for Avalanche? Yeah, so the, the piece that's exposed to Avalanche is over uh, gRPC. And so this ah, means okay. that you can, yeah, you can implement that in any language that you want that implements that same interface. So you have to have some adapter over gRPC. Uh, and so we have this in Golang and then we also have this in Rust. Uh, that is still, however, exposing a very low level interface for how to build a virtual machine. You have to define all of the, uh, block parsing, building all of this logic, as well as all of the other invariants that are specified by the consensus engine, which are, uh, you know, there's a decent amount of logic in there. So the goal of, uh, the hyper SDK and other VM SDKs is to, is to build on top of that and abstract. Exactly. Yeah. And so hyper SDK is released in Golang. We're planning on also releasing an alternative version in Rust. And we'll probably also experiment with other SDKs that are targeted at different use cases as well. Yeah, you should. You you guys should uh, do this in Python. I, I, I mean, Python also has a pretty robust gRPC implementation. Uh, yeah, because so I use it in my day job. <laughs> so, <no>. Yeah. <laughs> so we've actually. Have you ever heard of Go plugin by any chance or HashiCorp? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've it's, actually. It's a, it's a pretty cool one. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. It, it gives you a lot of stuff out of the box. 
Um, and so we originally in our original RP, we call it RPC chain VM. Uh, so there's kind of RPC, gRPC layer between Avalanche Go, the binary process, and then a separate process that implements the, the VM interface and another process. Um, we originally used Go plugin, which as it turns out is a little bit Go specific. So we've been working on, uh, separating it out. So it's just using gRPC and is easier to implement other languages that don't have all of the same specifics. So we're very, very close now to having that completely stripped out so that it'll be a lot easier to implement the exact same thing in other languages. So once we have that. If, if I were you, basically I'd be looking at just defining protocol buffers, right? Just put a proto, proto buff message format out there and let the developers basically say, okay, this is the standard you build it yep. in whatever library you want, as long as you can express it in protobufs uh, uh, 3.0 or whatever it is, right? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly what we're what we're doing. We're trying to also, you know, generate these things out for uh, for different languages too. So we're going to have this in GoLang and Rust, and it's uh, pretty straightforward. I think somebody has set one up in, I think it was TypeScript, uh, and somebody's also set it up in C++ as well, uh, even with the nice. existing Go plugin. And it's just going to get easier to, to do that in the future. Cool. Uh, now that I feel like now I'm kind of like we kind of like gone into this kind of a bit of a rabbit hole, and I, I'm I'm conscious that uh, KK would be like uh, scratching his head about all of this. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah. let, no, I'm let, let me let me yeah. let me pull myself back out of uh, uh, nerd, nerding out about this and coming back to uh, the other one, which was uh, essentially uh, bootstrapping. Right. So now I've set up my blockchain and I've created a, a validator uh, I've set up your uh, the avalanche validator and I've uh, built myself a, a a node how do I actually bootstrap myself into the avalanche network so how do you actually bootstrap all the the blockchains that exist into the avalanche network yeah yeah well it could be my blockchain it could be I might just be like a participant node or an archive node or just a client that is out there. Uh, how do I connect and make sure that I've got, I'm connecting to the right subnets and the right, uh, yeah. you know? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so yeah, uh, the platform chain is the one that defines the validator sets. So what you actually have to do okay. is define some set of, uh, of bootstrappers, which you're willing to kind of trust for the initial sync of the network. And in Avalanche Go, you don't have to specify this manually. There are default ones that are, are run by, by Avalanche Labs. You can see the IP addresses and the node IDs in the code. Uh, so you kind of specify or run with those and you'll sync the P chain off of them. Once you've synced the P chain, you now have a complete view into the current validator set of the network. So once you have that, you can actually run the consensus protocol over what is the accepted tip of all of the different blockchains. So once you have that accepted tip, you can recursively fetch everything else. Okay, cool. And uh, what about uh, governance? Uh, I imagine since you uh, Avalanche has claimed itself to be the most decentralized blockchain out there, uh, there must be some decentralized way to govern itself, correct? Uh, so what's the what's the uh, plan for governance that you have? Uh, so we don't have any on-chain decentralized governance at the moment. Uh, there have been a couple of things that people are interested in uh, having some governance over. Specifically, people are very interested in the ability to change what the minimum staking amount is, play around with delegation, minimum delegation fees, stuff like that. We unfortunately haven't implemented on-chain governance yet. 
we are planning to. It's not our highest priority right now. Uh, so right. we'll definitely get to it. I think we actually had an implementation of it, uh, but it sort of slipped to work on some some other priorities that, that came up. Uh, we're very, very performance focused and we, are, we care a lot about decentralization. Uh, at the same time, we're optimizing for performance right now and trying to make Avalanche the best thing possible uh, and the best platform developer toolkit possible. So uh, definitely on-chain governance is something that slid a little bit uh, and we'll definitely get mm-hmm. to it at some point in the future. But yeah, unfortunately, there's not too much to comment on right now just because we don't have any on-chain governance at the moment. Uh, so actually, that that's a it's a great segue into uh, the the roadmap, right? So, what is your roadmap for the next uh, I don't know year or so? Uh, what what are the next things that are coming up after Hyper SDK? What are some of the priorities that Avalanche is working on? Yeah, so one of the biggest things that's on our timeline or on our roadmap right now is called Avalanche Word Messaging. So we talked a little bit about how Avalanche has achieved scale through this horizontal scaling of having multiple different subnets. And the way that we, uh, and that's great, you know, because you can have all these different networks, you can achieve higher scale. But at the end of the day, in order to have those be useful, in order to make it better to build a subnet on Avalanche than to just sort of fork Avalanche Go and run your own uh, instance of it and run your own blockchain separately, what you really have to have is seamless interoperability between all the different blockchains and all the different subnets that are created on Avalanche. So one of the biggest things on our roadmap uh, right now is this notion of Avalanche warp meshing, where we actually take advantage of the idea that every validator of every subnet is also a validator on the primary network. And what we do Mm -hmm. is every single validator on the primary network uh, can register a BLS public key. And because every single validator uh, of any subnet is also validating the p-chain, it will have an up-to-date copy of what the current state of the p-chain is. And it will know if you're a validator on subnet A, you actually also have a complete up-to-date copy of the p-chain. So you know exactly what the validator set of subnet B is as well and vice versa. And so what this means uh-huh. is that you, yeah, so you can actually verify an agri- a BLS multi-signature from subnet B because you know exactly what BLS public keys are registered to those validators and exactly what their corresponding weights are. Right. And since the public keys are already in the P-chain and you have a copy of the P-chain because your validator has to maintain it. Exactly. And so this is kind of the core vision of like, why does every validator of a subnet need to be a validator of the primary network? And it's for that interoperability play. And this is where we start to get to a point where when you have that avalanche, we're messaging that interoperability you actually get to a point where you're better off launching a subnet on Avalanche than trying to fork it and running in your own own place. And so that's mm-hmm. uh, one of the biggest things. Uh, and we've implemented Avalanche warp meshing in Avalanche Go. Sort of the core primitives that are used are the generation of this BLS multi-signature and then also the verification of a BLS multi-signature at a specific P-chain height. And so once you have those two things, you can then integrate it into each individual virtual machine. So the most immediate thing on a roadmap right now is integrating Avalanche Warp Meshing into Subnet EVM and then also integrating into CoreEth, which is the virtual. So Subnet EVM is the virtual machine powering EVM subnets and CoreEth is the virtual machine powering uh, the EVM on the C chain. Uh, and so right. once we've integrated into there, we'll ideally have this seamless interoperability between any EVM subnets on Avalanche and the C chain. You'll be able to do cool things like move a large pieces of computation off of the C chain and onto their own highly optimized subnets and still allow them to talk to the C chain in a seamless way. So one thing that you sort of right. give up when you do this is you give up this notion of composability. Because if you have a subnet 
uh, an application on a subnet instead of an application on the C chain. That application on a subnet cannot call out directly to another DAP that's that exists on the C chain, right? Uh, you can't just modify the state of something that exists under a completely different validator set. And so what you have to do is actually send a verified message that can then be received on that side. And you have this sort of decoupling between sending a call, receiving it, and then potentially sending a response back. Uh, and so that's going to be one of the biggest focuses for us in the next few months is building that into a seamless experience, both into subnet EPM, Core ETH, and then into other virtual machines that we'll want to, uh, to create as well. I would say that that is one of the biggest uh, items right now. And the biggest item beyond that is continuing to iterate on our virtual machine SDKs that are offered. So to elaborate on that a bit, I think hyper SDK is optimized for people that just want to define some state transition uh, as simple as possible and get insane performance out of the box. What it is not as optimized for is this sort of like general computation layer. So things like the EVM is for general computation, uh, Cosm Wasm is for general computation. C-Level is for general computation. MoveVM is for general computation. And there's also a lot of demand for developers that are used to those ecosystems that want to move to Avalanche to take advantage of that consensus, uh, consensus protocol that has uh, you know, better performance than some of these others that you know people want to have this higher throughput and lower latency and they want to try it out. Uh, and so what we also want to put out is a VM SDK that is custom tailored to making it easy to port existing virtual machines and trying to standardize exactly what that interface looks like so that if you have some sort of a generalized computation of what a block format and state transition is, you can just define exactly that piece, ideally just by importing the code that already exists and not have to worry about any of these consensus engine invariants right now. So, you know, there's a decent number of teams that are already building this sort of thing on Avalanche uh, for a couple of the different popular blockchain virtual machines that exist. And we're trying to make their jobs much, much easier. And so there's what I see as sort of these two different directions and what virtual machine SDKs mean for Avalanche. And one is making it easy to build something that already exists or run something that already exists on Avalanche. And the other is building something completely from scratch. And there's a lot of different approaches to building something from completely from scratch. Hyper SDK is, is definitely one of them. And then we're going to continue to optimize uh, the Hyper SDK and continue to iterate and try things out and see what the community likes and how to use it the best way. So that I think is really, really exciting. Cool. Uh, so with uh, zooming out a little bit more, uh, how do you actually see Avalanche uh, and the, uh, the capabilities that the Avalanche ecosystem build play out in uh, in in the world as a as a what is your opinion in terms of you know people call uh, now we've got all sorts of things happening in the larger internet right we've got yeah. meltdowns in twitter and facebook all <laughs> the large uh, fang people are running yeah. scared and uh, uh, they've got we've got the rise of other other uh, distributed uh, uh, solutions like uh, federated yeah. platforms like mastodon and stuff like that um, how how do you actually see the role of Avalanche in this larger world? Yeah, uh, to be honest, you know, a lot of this seems like, a, you know, a lot of the circumstances are not great. There are layoffs going on, people affected. But in terms of what this means for, for Web3, it does seem like a good opportunity to build. And really, it seems like a good opportunity to see, hey, what can we actually build on this that actually provides a better user experience? And we're starting to see, you know, a couple of different use cases for that. So one of them that I've seen uh, Hayden uh, tweet about is the fact that if you want to transfer money from U.S. dollars to euros, 
Right now, the most efficient way to do that is not is no longer Western Express. Uniswap on Ethereum, and I think Uniswap on uh, some other platforms as well. I'm not, I'm not sure which one exactly. Actually, offers a better rate than Western Express, and Trader Joe on Avalanche as well offers a better rate than Western Express. So you know we're really reaching this point with the Uni V3 and Trader Joe liquidity books that we can actually offer a better experience than exists in the traditional financial system, which is really really cool. And I think that. The future of Web3 is either start to compete with what exists before it, start to build services that are actually better and services that offer more uh, services that people prefer to use or, you know, uh, don't use Web3. And I think that this is a really great opportunity because of the fact that Web2 is sort of running into all of these issues. There are all of these companies that have sort of overexpanded. They're not really iterating that much. And I think blockchain offers some really cool premises to build on top of. And the way that I see Avalanche play into that future is that we're going to continue to double down on this notion that we're providing uh, consensus out of the box, interoperability out of the box, and the ability to build custom VMs out of the box. And I think that there's a huge possibility for these uh, heterogeneous network of blockchains with seamless interoperability to be the, the winning play, the thing that kind of uh, Web3 gravitates towards. And if we just continue to develop and continue to build the best developer tooling possible so that you have the best experience out of the box, the easiest place to build custom blockchains of any kind, that's where I see Avalanche trying to fit in. And if we can make that the best possible way to build secure, reliable, uh, and usable distributed systems, then that's going to be really, really cool. Because you know, I think this is sort of starting to shift to an era of potentially using Byzantine fault-tolerant protocols, Byzantine fault-tolerant distributed systems, and iterating on what the internet offers and offering you know better privacy, uh, better security, and hopefully that's that's something that Web three can offer the world. So we'll see. That's that's my uh, grand and exciting vision. Cool. Hopefully, uh, uh, it will come to pass, uh, as you say. Uh, but I, I, it has been a really interesting uh, discussion. I think uh, uh, we went down some very interesting uh, rabbit holes uh, and uh, uh, nodded out a little bit. But I think overall, uh, it was a useful uh, look at Avalanche. And I want to thank you, Aaron, for uh, spending the time with us and uh, patiently answering and uh, uh, going through uh, what Avalanche is going to is is currently and what it what you guys have in mind for the future. Yeah, and I, I just want to add to that, Aaron. You know, it's been a really great conversation. And uh, just my two cents. You know, I think when I look at Avalanche, uh, you know, from hearing this whole conversation, it sounds like you know it's it's one of those projects that really went back to the drawing board and decided to do things differently. Uh, you know, with the different kinds of chains for different purposes and using different consensus protocols in the same ecosystem. So yeah, from my perspective, it was really fascinating to learn about how the ecosystem works. And uh, once again, I want to thank you for your time. And we hope that, you know, we can have you back on the show sometime in the future. Yeah, thank you guys so much. It was great being on. I love the, the nerdy rabbit holes that we went down. Uh, plenty more to go down. So we'd love to be back on in the future at some point. Yeah, great, great chat with you guys. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Once again, that was Aaron Buckwald from Ava Labs. We hope that you enjoyed this deep dive into the Avalanche protocol. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us at bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.